for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Take your Bibles this morning and open to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me just make one reminder. If you're a guest with us today, we would appreciate it if you'd fill out a guest card that looks a lot like this. You can leave it in your seat. You can put it in the offering receptacle on your way out the door or leave it at the kiosk in the community room. It just helps us have a record of your attendance. We're going to send you a letter that says thank you and gives you some introductory information. That's all we'll do. We will not harass you. We promise. On the back side, if you have a prayer request, these prayer requests go directly to our elders on Monday morning, and we pray for them throughout the week. We would be honored to be able to minister to you in that way. If you, have a, if you want a follow-up contact from a pastor, whatever the need of your life may be, and in any way that we can serve you, we would be honored to do so, and we would ask you to complete that and leave it with us. As well, I'm going to ask you to pray for our students this weekend. Um, our Meta Weekend, our Student Discipleship Weekend begins Friday, and so uh, a good portion of you will be heavily involved in that. So would you just be praying that God has His way among our students this weekend and our student families, and that we in a, as a church family would see God move in a powerful way in that time. All right, let's go to the Word this morning, and we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're in a series entitled, United. United, And in this series, we're talking about what it looks like to be together in the gospel. And, and, and our one big aim is simply to live as united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we've said every week, and I'll probably say every week of this series, unity fuels the people of God for God's kingdom mission in the world. And it's critical for us to build constantly the unity among our uh, congregation for the sake of mission. Now today I'm going to have a little different structure to my sermon, but I want to begin by reading the entirety of 1 Corinthians 4. It's only 21 verses, take us about three minutes, but would you follow along as I read aloud? This is the word of the Lord. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? 
If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. I'm going to do something a little different this morning because I believe a passage of this nature warrants it. I'm going to explain the passage and then there's going to be a section in the middle of the sermon by which I present a disclaimer and try to put us all on the same page. And then I'm going to conclude the sermon by applying this passage to our church. Now, if you are a note taker, understand this. You're going to see that screen until the last third of the sermon, okay? So put your pencils down, put, put your note paper away. Don't close your Bible because figuratively we need to keep the Word of God open and be open to the Word, right? And I may have to res, uh, refer to it in a moment. But I want us to talk today about being united to follow God's leaders, United to follow God's leaders. In the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul moves to a full defense of his ministry. He needs to defend his ministry simply because, not because it's not legit, but because there are so many in the Corinthian church that have, have begun a full frontal assault on Paul. They're after him, and as we've seen already, they're applying worldly wisdom and labels that verify a person or a leader in the world, they're applying it to Paul, they're pitting him against the other leaders in the church like Apollos, and they're saying we'll follow one but we won't follow both. And specifically, we like Apollos, we don't like you. And so Paul is defending his ministry in order to win the church. And he's confronting some hard people. 
The problem is, anytime you confront hard people in the church, it always occurs among innocent bystanders. Nothing, nothing demonstrates a church's familial nature more than how we address our dysfunctions. Right? I mean, if you want to see a church, Sunday morning's a good opportunity, but you're not really seeing the church, right? Show up to business meeting. That's where you're really seeing the heart of a church, right? I mean, show up to a meeting where people have a vested interest and then you begin to see not only the best parts, but shall we just leave it at this, the dysfunctions of the family as well. A dad or a mom knows all too well their own weaknesses and shortcomings in leading a family. And those always seem to be most glaringly evident in moments when discipline needs to be applied, right? Man, I don't feel qualified to do this. And so 1 Corinthians 4, and we'll see and also in chapter 5, they demonstrate by teaching us to address these problems in the church. You see, the gospel is glorious, not because it's just good news, but it is good news in the face of all things, specifically the utter brokenness of this life and of this world. And so the gospel always provides a way to address sin in every person and among the church for forgiveness, for redemption, and for reconciliation. And so Paul begins by defining his ministry, and he defines it by his call and his commission. He uses two phrases that we'll refer to today. He says this, that I'm a servant of Christ and a steward of the mystery of God. And that provides two important understandings for the ministry, that he is accountable to God, but he's also authorized by God for the ministry that he's doing. And he's clear that he works for God and he serves God's people. And so these judgments that people are assaulting him with, that we see in verses 3, 4, and 5, that these judgments to discredit him, he simply says this, these are non-binding upon me, not because the people who are offering them do not matter, but because they don't matter more than God matters to him. That's what he's saying. In other words, he says this, it's not that I won't be judged by myself or by you, but I don't allow that judgment to stick because ultimately I've got to answer to God for what I'm doing. And his judgment will supersede all others. In other words, he won't be judged when they impose these worldly values on his work because God will be judging him. You see, accountability to God and authority from God defines Paul's ministry, what he is to be doing and how he is to do it. You see, what Paul does is this. He places an eternal perspective on his earthly labors. An eternal perspective, one that takes into place not only the here and now or the scope of his life, but one that takes into perspective God's eternal nature and what God has always been doing and what God will be doing. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, he takes in this scope and says, I am but a blip on the screen, but I am a blip on the screen. And I want to see that blip in terms of all eternity. 
And what he's doing is not defined by the world in what he's doing or how he's doing it, but it's defined rather by God's call and God's commission, by God's authority, but also by God's uh, accountability that he holds over him. You see, maybe some of you are familiar with this term, roast the preacher, right? Maybe you've eaten some roasted preacher at Sunday lunch before. If you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with this. I didn't practice a lot of roast the preacher on Sundays at lunch in my home because my dad was the preacher. It was just solid critiques that I offered. Right? But you see, the only way that roast the preacher at Sunday lunch can really burn the man who's done the preaching is if the man sets worldly values and accomplishments and pleasing people as his primary aim. But I will warn us in this way, roast the preacher always singes the person doing the roasting. See, Paul doesn't dismiss his responsibility for the people by saying that he cannot be judged, but rather he strengthens the value of accountability to God who will ultimately judge him. See, Paul is accountable to God because he is the one who authorizes his ministry. And Paul's practice forms a model of instruction for the people in the church at Corinth. He has applied this understanding not only to himself, but he says, I've applied it to Apollos as well. And if you'll remember what I said a couple of weeks ago, the problem was not between Paul and Apollos. Surely there was some tension there because of the reality of what was taking place. But it wasn't Paul and Apollos or any of the other pastors that were having the issues. It was the divisions that were being imposed on the church by the people who were using them to choose sides against one another in the church. And so Paul says, I've applied this to myself. I've applied it to Apollos. And surely I've applied it to all the others. Because a little later in the chapter, he'll say, I sent Timothy to you to do the very work that I began among you. And what he's wanting the Corinthians to do is to learn from this example so that they too will apply an eternal perspective, not only to their own lives, but to the church and what the church is doing. That meant they would have to deny worldly wisdom, which is the very element that's fueling their personal pride and arrogance. You see, pride leads always to ungratefulness, to to arrogance. And that's what he says in verse 7 when he says, you act as though what you have was not received. And if you did receive it, then why are you acting ungrateful about having it? You didn't conjure it up. You didn't give it to yourself, but yet you've allowed yourself to become prideful in the way you hold it because you've believed that you did. And so we see this clear evidence that they were not thinking in terms of Christ's likeness, but rather in terms of selfishness. Every Christian is accountable to God and should hold an eternal perspective for their lives in order to guard against worldly judgment. What Paul is saying of himself in verses 1 through 5, that I don't allow myself to be judged by others who are imposing worldly values on me, wasn't just to guard him. It was a model and an example and an instruction for the whole church. One of the greatest ways, the only way that a Christian can genuinely fight condemnation in their life 
is to use the gospel to guard against the worldly values and the worldly assumptions and labels that are put upon them. That's the only guard that we have for our heart. And yet so often we try to use better worldly labels and values to trump lesser worldly values and labels. And they don't work. Paul applies what we would call a cross-centered theology for the Christian life. And with his sharpest words in verses 8 through 13, he, he, he draws a stark comparison between the ministry of the apostles and who they are and the people of the congregation. And he highlights in this comparison their thinking that they're using. And here's what they say. Well, we as the people, we're wise, we're strong, we're honored, we're well-fed, we're well-dressed, and we're well-provided for with many possessions. But you pitiful apostles, you're fools. You're weak. You're disrespected. You're hungry. You're thirsty. You're poorly dressed and without anything. You're, You're literally the scum of the earth. And God has done all of this. Now, Paul doesn't believe this about himself, nor does he believe that about the people. What Paul is doing is he is giving articulation to the arguments that the people are imposing upon them by the way they're acting in the worldly labels. And so when they hear it, they go, well, yes, well, yeah, oh, wait a minute, oh. And all of a sudden, a real tension begins to emerge. And, and, and between what they're doing and what it sounds like when words are given to this. And then to cap it all off, he says, God is the one who's done this. See, the comparison accurately clarifies their worldly judgment. But it brings embarrassment and shame upon the one who has made that judgment. And the harsh comparisons reveal the worldly values that they're using to discredit God's work and God's servants. You see, friends, when we view life with worldly wisdom, we strip the word of the cross from any value for us. We strip the gospel from its power for our life. We we strip the Holy Spirit from being able to empower us, and we strip God from receiving any glory in our lives. An eternal perspective, though, enables us as Christians to apply godly wisdom to life from a cross-centered understanding that brings God glory in all things. That's why Paul says, it is the word of the cross and it is the work of the Spirit in you that brings God's glory, not only to you, but to God through the church. And so Paul admonishes them to stop viewing life from a worldly perspective And he encourages them to look at all things through the word of the cross. And he makes a strong appeal now. After this tenacious comparison he draws. He makes a strong appeal. He says, look, I'm not trying to put shame and guilt on you or condemnation. But out of the relationship that we have through the gospel, he says what? I became a father to you. And in light of this relationship, he's trying to beg of them to imitate his faith in following Jesus. And that's what he said. I I wanted to care for you when I had to go on because the mission of God sent me on. I sent Timothy to you to continue this gospel ministry among you so that you could throw off the chains of worldliness and you could embrace the freedom of godliness for your life. And he says this. But I have no doubt there will be those who continue to run their mouths. But talk will be cheap. Because the kingdom of God does not consist in talk. 
Well, I'll tell you what I can do, right? No. The kingdom of God consists in real power. And is it the power that we so often want to bloat ourselves up in and display? No. It's a much greater power that has a much smaller visible presence. It's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our hearts to touch us with a word. And in an instant, change us from being proud and boastful and arrogant, puffed up idiots to being wrecked, humble servants of the God of all glory. That's real power, friends. It doesn't come in our words, but from the word of God imparted to us and when faith receives it as a good soil so that it can take full root in our hearts and in our lives and grow. That's the power that Paul is referring to here. You see, every person saved by grace through faith in Jesus is empowered to live a gospel-centered, cross-shaped, spirit-led, Jesus-following, God-honoring life of godly wisdom in the face of worldliness. That's what the gospel does for us. And what 1 Corinthians 4 helps us to understand is the importance of godly leaders to be united as the church as we labor together in mission. And so here's the big point that I want to make to you today. I want you to understand that pastors are God's servants given to the church to lead people in following Jesus Pastors are God's servants given to the church to lead people in following Jesus. Let me tell you, 1 Corinthians 4 is not a passage that provides a go-to sermon. You don't go to this verse of Scripture, to this chapter of Scripture, to go, I'm about to preach a barn burner today. You know, you, you might preach a barn burner and learn you've locked the door and you're inside. Not good. But, but listen, first... There's two reasons. That, that First of all, this passage can be hard to understand some of Paul's train of thought. And, and what's he flowing and what's he referring to there. But secondly, when it's preached, it's often used in an overstated manner to justify a bloated pastoral authority or to justify an unbiblical honor that the church should bestow upon an individual. So let me tell you what my prayer is in approaching this passage today. With great fear and trembling, I might. I'd rather preach on money than to preach on this. Because money, man, makes you squirm like crazy. I'm just going to make you mad today. Not really. I'm just kidding. Just, just trying to break through some of those already preconceived notions. I'll get to that in just a minute with the disclaimer. I pray that I bring as much clarity as possible to the first problem, where Paul's train of thought can be hard to follow. But secondly, I also pray that I'll bring as much biblical truth to understanding pastoral authority in the church as possible. Because without it, we as a church can't operate as God's intention. And when we pervert it, we can't operate as God intended for the church to operate. You see, New Testament apostles held a unique, one-of-a-kind ministry. These were the 12 that were closely aligned with Jesus. And any use of the word apostle today must make a clear distinction between the apostles, capital A of the New Testament, 
and the apostolic work, little a, that continues in the world today. The capital A apostles were used to establish the church. The little a apostolic gift remains as an essential element in the church in order to lead the church. And what we see is that this can't only apply to capital A apostles like Paul himself. I mean, Apollos was not even an apostle. But he says he applies it not only to himself, but to Apollos and to Timothy and surely to Titus and any of the others that were sent out in the pastoral ministry that he gave to the church. And so we see that he continues to use this as a guide for his understanding for pastoral ministry. And we can do the same in our own church today. For pastors serve God's people to continue to build on the gospel work and the foundation that was established by the capital A apostles. Doesn't make us the same as them by any regards, but it does mean that the work is continuing there. Now, for a disclaimer. If you come from a church that you've ever attended, been a part of in your life with very little or no organized leadership structure, if you come from a church that had a single pastor, hierarchical structure or status, if you come from a church with a harsh history of infighting, backbiting or backstabbing, or if you come from a church where you experienced a schism event, and I'll kind of use that as a comprehensive one, okay? Then I'm going to humbly ask you today to listen and try to not filter what I say through what you felt in another situation. That's all I'm asking you to do today. Not saying I'm going to be absolutely right. I'm not saying the way you felt about that situation meant you were wrong. I'm just asking us to step out for a moment And to consider the word and these applications. And so I don't ask you to forget the pain that you incurred in or by the church. And so to discredit it in some way. But to ask you to listen. And to not allow the reality of that pain to interpret what I'm saying today. I'm asking you to trust the Lord. And to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance in what I say. And trust that the Lord will take care of you and he'll take care of me as only he can do. Truth of the matter is, if we can't put that pain aside, I couldn't preach this sermon. I've got a list of people that I would like to pay back for my father's pastoral ministry, let alone my own. Before I was a pastor, you know what I was? A member in the church that didn't aspire to be a pastor, didn't care about the pastoral ministry, but I did choose sides by worldly labels. And so I just want you to know I stand in front of you today as one that's been hurt multiple times by the church. Not only directly, but indirectly. I stand as one that's been hurt by the church as a staff member. You know why? Because the church... Is a collection of imperfect people that are seeking to follow the Lord and to trust what He can do. And, not for, and if it were not for the grace of God in my life, I'd still be after the people 
that I put on the list through the ages. But by God's grace, I can forgive them. I can let all that bitterness and resentment get out of me. And I can love them and pray God's blessing on them in the same way that I can pray that on me. That's what I hope this sermon helps you do today. You see, this disclaimer means that every person must approach the issue of church leadership by stepping outside of past experience. Wounds from former pastors or leaders and hurts from unhealed wounds and ask the Holy Spirit to lead your heart and to lead your mind to hear, to see, and to think as God's Word speaks. Friends, the only person the Holy Spirit cannot heal from church schisms and problems is the one that will not trust Him for the work. That's the aim of my labors this morning. I wish I could guarantee you that uh, another disclaimer would be a disclaimer and then a guarantee. LifePoint will never experience conflict or schism. But if I said that, I would already be lying to you. And so I'm not going to say that. As a matter of fact, I can almost guarantee that we will. It's somewhere in our future. I don't know who will cause it. I don't know where it will come from. But I can guarantee you, because sin remains in the congregation, it will come. The issue is, what will we do when it arises? And who will we turn to? And friends, I I want to put before you today that pastors are God's servants given to the church to lead people in following Jesus. And if you think you're a member of this congregation today and you'll feel this sermon with greater weight or tension than anyone else, I would argue that you actually want. There will be eight people that hear this sermon today that will fill it with the greatest weight and the greatest heaviness. And that will be your eight elders who understand that there will be an accountant given to God for names and for faces of real people that we were given responsibility for on this earth. So there's another disclaimer. Now, if the church is to faithfully follow Jesus and engage God's mission, she must embrace her leaders from God to follow and to imitate their faith. I'm going to use the word pastor today. Sometimes I'm probably going to use it in the singular form and sometimes in the plural form, but I want you to know it's a plural word for us. That that there's not just one, there are eight pastors of this church, all of which hold an equal level of authority. Okay, And so I, I, I don't want to put words into their mouth. Because I am the one that wants to ta- I want to take responsibility for what I say. But I just want you to know, I'm not talking about me versus you today. I'm not even talking about you versus the elders. And if I use the term elder or if I use the term pastor, I'm talking about the same group of people. Okay? There are eight of us in the church. So let's look at four applications from this passage that should shape how we as a church understand and regard the role of of pastor. And I'm going to need to move through these a little quickly. The first application is this. We see in verses 1 through 5 that pastors are appointed by God to lead the church. These two phrases that Paul uses are as applicable to us today as they were for him in that day. We are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
just as Paul applied it to himself and Apollos and Timothy and all who came under him, so we can apply it today. We are not New Testament apostles, but we are commissioned by the same Lord to extend that ministry and to build upon that same foundation. For pastors continue the New Testament leadership of the church that was established by the apostles. So as servants of Christ, Pastors then are authorized by God to do His work. Pastors serve in ministry, not not from their own personal authority. Well, I want to give a pastor authority because I like them, or because of this reason, or because of that reason. And if this or that reason isn't because of an understanding of God's divine authority placed upon us through His Word, then it's a worldly reason, and it should not be assigned. And so we should assign pastoral authority by identifying their role as Christ's servants in the church. And so authority for pastoral ministry comes only from God. And and it arises at what I would call the fountainhead where three adjoining streams become one. Here are the three streams. First of all, godly authority comes to a pastor's life when a man confesses that he lives under God's call. A man must confess that he lives under the call of God. The church needs to hear that. The church needs to see that demonstrated in his life. And that needs to be an ongoing confession for his life. The second stream that must come together is a man's dependence must rest only on God's word, the Bible. I don't derive any authority, nor do we as the elders derive our authority from what we decide and from our words. Rather, we draw it out of the Word of God. That's where our authority comes from. And that's going to be important because later in this chapter, when Paul calls upon the church to follow his life and to imitate him, remember, their only scripture was the Old Testament. And what the, uh, what the apostles were doing were giving a Christ-centered application to all of the Old Testament. But we have the Word of God, the New Testament for us now, the ministry of the apostles that remains among us. Our authority is drawn not from what we think or surmise, but from what we draw out of the Word of God. That's why it's a problem if you go to a church. Like somebody I talked to this last week said, I went to the church. They didn't even open the Bible, let alone refer to it. That's a problem, friends. But that's more modus operandi in our world today than it is not. People want to preach on every topic of self-help to make you feel better in the moment. But when you walk away, you just as soon forget it, and it didn't do you any good on Monday. Instead of planting a seed that you may not have liked in the moment that it was put in, but it won't stop growing in a heart of faith and keep bringing application to you. That's all stuff I don't need to get off on right now, but I'm just telling you, a dependence upon the Word of God. You ought to see and hear the dependence of that pastor as they refer to and try to live out God's Word. The third stream that flows into this fountainhead is when a man demonstrates God's authority over his life by the ongoing reality of Holy Spirit's work being fleshed out through godly character. You ought to see it in their life through the character that they live out and they demonstrate. And these three streams of God's call, God's word, and godly character in their life, they authorize a man to serve God's people. And so pastoral authority streams 
through the congregation. Did you hear me that? Because if no one's witnessing godly character, there can't be authority. Right? And if no one's growing in God's word, there can't be authority. And if no one's there to affirm God's call, there can't be authority. What does that mean for us? The congregation is what? Necessary. Just because a man labels his blog or his preaching ministry as a pastor doesn't mean he is by God's standards. It takes a congregation to make a pastor. Because pastors are people before they're pastors. They're sheep before they can become under-shepherds. That's the importance of pastoral ministry in the church. This authority streams through the congregation when a pastor's call, when his dependence on God's word, and when godly character identify him as God's servant among the church. The second phrase was stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, pastors must give account to God. They serve with an awareness that final accountability will be given to God. Listen, friends, there is no judgment of any person or peoples that could be put onto a pastor that compares to the weight of understanding that one will stand before God and a name and a face will be placed in front of you and you will have to give an account for how you shepherded that person. I hope you're not behind me in line. We may be there a while. No threat compares to that. Let me tell you when a threat does compare to that. When one of us cares to impress you more than God. When we care more about what you think, what you say, and how you judge than what God has already said. That's when that threat matters to us most. That's when it keeps us up at night. That's when it makes us anxious about what the future will hold for the body of Christ. That's when the greatest destruction is rent on the church. And that is the reason there must be a plurality. How many of y'all watch Laverne and Shirley? I know you've got to be under the age of 40. to. You remember what would happen when one of them would grow anxious and work themselves up? What would they do? They would slap the other one. Get a hold of yourself, right? That's why there's a plurality of pastors in the churches. That's right. I mean, sometimes it's an open hand slap that we have to give to one. Not not literally. But just to go, would you wake up? Just wake up. Wake up to the grace of God and what he's doing. You see, pastoral accountability holds a man to God's wisdom, to God's commands, while guarding him from personal and worldly demands and the church you want that friends God's authority and God's accountability it guides and it frees a pastor in how he serves one way a pastor knows he's not living faithfully as God's stewards is when he most wants to impress people man I just like to get a laugh out of you people sometimes but there's a part of me and and there's sometimes that I feel the weight of the coldness of the crowd and maybe I drop one to try to get a laugh and, and work the crowd a little bit. And, and I can't say there's not some inkling in me of wanting, of wanting that. I mean, I stand up in front of you almost every week. I can't deny that my heart is perfect in that, right? 
I have, to, I have to confess and to repent and to pray that God would rend that from me. And not every time I drop a joke am I digging for a laugh. But the overwhelming temptation to appease, to impress, to please people is an ever-present, ever-constant temptation. Do you know why? Because sometimes I believe the glory you could put on me is greater than the glory that God could receive from me. Pastors must learn that every critique and every criticism can coach us, but not one should be allowed to settle in to condemn us. The church doesn't own or hire the pastor, and neither do they authorize him. They affirm and they respond to God's authority through God's leaders by these three streams of call, dependence on the word, and godly character being worked out in their life. And as stewards, and when we understand pastors as stewards, not only the pastors, but the whole congregation, it guards a pastor's life, and it guards a a pastor's ministry from worldly uh, condemnation and worldly-minded people. And it provides a way for the church to regard her pastors while guarding against divisions that divide us. You see, friends, pastors aren't authorized to rule your life, and nor should we ever operate in that manner. But pastors should be welcomed and invited into your life to lead you and to guide you spiritually. Valuing church leaders from worldly wisdom damages the church. Let me tell you, when you wrongly elevate a leader in an unbiblical way, when you like them or follow them because you've judged them by worldly wisdom, here's one of the ways you can know you're doing that. You'll be shocked when they do something wrong. I can't believe it. You'll be defensive when anything comes against them or or when they fail. No, I don't care what they do. They're, They're a great person. I've known them. I've seen them. And you'll not allow anything to say otherwise. But worldly judgment never serves to strengthen the church's unity. Unity strengthens in the church when all of the church holds an eternal perspective of the church and of her leaders through which Jesus can shepherd the church. Here's the thing. When you rightly regard your pastors, you're not worshiping them. You're honoring them so that through them you can hallow worship Jesus. The second application I want to make today is this in verses 6 and 7. Pastors need a structure of accountability that empowers them to thrive. Pastors need a structure of accountability that empowers them to thrive. Paul applied this understanding and he would want us to apply it today. And churches invest in their own spiritual well-being when they create a structure of accountability where pastors can thrive. Like I said, pastors are people before they become pastors. We have sin issues as well and lack of faith issues that we must wrestle with through the same gospel that we proclaim to you. And an accountability structure serves to guide and to free the whole church in the same way that it serves the individual pastor. You see, a church that has no accountability structure for pastors is a spiritual landmine. And as soon as a little bit of weight shifts, there's going to be a big boom and somebody's going to get hurt. 
A person that lives without any accountability structure is also a ticking time bomb living on borrowed time. But the church that operates with a strong accountability structure not only guides the church in the way it operates, but it provides a model for every person to apply that same kind of standard of the gospel for their own life. And the only accountability standard that works is one that is applied correctly throughout the whole church. A strong accountability structure frees the church to do the work of ministry with confidence in her leaders. The third application, and I'm trying to hurry for you. The last thing you want to go is the longest sermon I've ever preached was telling the church how they ought to regard us as pastors. You laughed. That made me feel good. This is a mess. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. The third application. Pastors should be honored for the one whose work they do, not a status that they attain or hold to. This contrast that Paul draws shows how a person disregards their pastor by placing worldly wisdom upon them. The greatest wrong in the church today may simply be this, that the church has become a place where rock star pastors can thrive. We will let you enthrone us and we will let you worship us because it feels good. But it will never serve the church well. And that's what you need to understand. When the church demands that a pastor be as cool as the world, be as wise as the world, or whatever it may be, they allow their pastor to strive after that status. And they'll never receive anything in the church that they can't get more abundantly and with a greater sense of enjoyment without any condemnation in the world. You see, friends, the church gets out of whack. The church gets ununited when pastors hold no distinction from worldly leadership and worldly wisdom. And so the way and the standard by which you regard your pastors should speak mostly about you and what you value. It demonstrates what you believe about Jesus and what you believe about His body, the local church. And let me just say some things that are very difficult for me to say, but I believe them with all of my heart. The way in which you honor and celebrate your pastors will determine what you most encourage and cultivate to grow in the church. Pastors are called and expected to hold to godliness no matter what the congregation honors. But hear me, friend, a Christian without a pastor is like a sheep without a shepherd. Let me make a finer distinction of that. I'm not saying it's a sinner without a Savior, but I am saying it is a saint outside of the Savior's intent. Jesus looked on people in the Bible who were without a shepherd, and the Bible says He had compassion on them. You know what that meant? It meant He longed to change their status from sheep without a shepherd to sheep with a shepherd. Unity is most strengthened when the church honors their pastors because God is most evident in the lives of the, in the lives of the congregation, both in the pastor and in the people. The fourth application I'll make today is this. Pastors should be followed by the church out of love. Out of love. That's why you, unity is so important, but it's also why the relationship in the church is so important. 
Paul goes back to his relationship with the Corinthians that was determined by the gospel. You see, loving leadership in the hardest of trials and conflicts provides the defining marker of true biblical pastoral leadership. Friends, spiritual influence may come from many sources for you, but none of those should trump pastors in the local congregation. Here's my hashtag for today. The best podcasts make horrible pastors. God gives pastors to the church to model gospel-centered, a gospel-centered life in order to lead others, not as perfect people whose lives should be duplicated. There's a difference between imitate me as I follow Christ and duplicate me because of who I am. One is of God. The other is of man. It's of the world. Pastors live among the flock. That's what a shepherd does, an under-shepherd To model a life of following Jesus by faith. To lead the church in personal obedience. And there's a mutual blessing of maturity from pastoral ministries. For pastors mature from leading the flock. And the flock matures from following a pastor. Every time you foregrow your church's pastoral ministry. You thwart yours and your pastor's maturity for selfish purposes. Arrogance and pride just gets personified because the primary cause that people refuse strong pastoral leadership, Paul says, is because of arrogance. And the principal reason that a pastor grows so weary from the congregation is because of pride. Either in the congregation or hear me, and I believe this to be equally even more so true, pride in the pastor. Pride in the pastor. Pastoring depends upon a relationship that is defined by doctrinal truths, covenantal commitment to define the responsibility and accountability, and by personal application. I'll conclude with this final illustration. I believe covenant membership provides the only biblical application for this relationship. Without a covenant, there's no true accountability for the pastor or for the people. You see, today we demand professionals so that if something goes wrong, we can blame them and not have to bear the responsibility. We don't want to risk our lives with the pastor that may or may not be wrong. But when you put your life under a plurality of pastors that are biblically qualified, character assessed, congregationally affirmed, and plurally installed, you don't put your lives into the hands of a man or into the hands of men. You put your life into the hands of God. Covenant membership provides a measure and a guard so that when something does go wrong, as it inevitably will, it will be handled in a biblical way to bring a gospel-driven resolution through reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, this is true every week, but it is especially true today, for we need your help, we need your spirit and his work in our hearts and in our lives. I confess for us as a congregation that we are sinful, broken people. 
that we come before you today in light of this sermon with that defining reality on our hearts and on our minds. But we do not come without hope. We do not have to exhaust ourselves in frustration with you that you've provided no one perfect to walk among us, to help us. In fact, the very power that Paul references that is greater than talk is this, that through imperfect people, you would make your perfect presence known to bring about a reconciliation, to bring about a resolution, to bring about a redemption that only you can give. I I can't think of a more powerful demonstration of the gospel. For Jesus, you are with us in each and every one of us that knows you today. And God, you've been so good to us as a church. Let us take a time when it's not immediately and imminently pressing upon us to commit our lives to you, to surrender to you, and to say, God, make me the person that you want me to be, to make this church the people that you are making us to be. We might shine the light that is the only light that can change this world. The light of Jesus Christ. Do that today in us. Help us where we are weak, where we fail in unbelief, and where we struggle with divisions that remain. Heal us not because of the greatness of the people that are among us, but because of your greatness that is in us. Help us, God. Help us. In Jesus' name.